Katie. I'm Erica. And this this is is Book Talk. Welcome to Book Talk. Book Talk is a weekly podcast where normally we read a book over four sections and chat about it on Sunday nights, but sometimes we find a book that we both love and we have to do a special episode on. Um, And today we get to do one of those episodes on Outlawed by Anna North. I mean, I like that you said it's when we both read a book that we like. Really what happens is one of us reads a book that we like and then we like force it down the other person's throat. That's actually 100% true, Um, which is very funny about this book because I started it, as we all know if you listen to the pod, and then I decided I didn't want to finish it. And when you read it, I was like, this is payback for all the times I've made you read rom-coms and and I deserved that. So it's okay. And I ended up loving it. Um, but it was the principle that I said I didn't want to read it. And you were like, uh-huh, watch. So we're going to discuss a little bit of our feelings about the book. And then after the break, we're going to be joined by the author, Anna North, to hear a little bit more about her inspiration for writing the book and how she thought about these characters and some of her insights. Yes. So Outlawed is set in the in a fictional past in the 1890s, and it follows the story of 17-year-old Ada. Uh, we start with her being married, and we start from that time until she settles down later in life as a midwife. A lot happens in between. Um, in the form of a memoir, Ada recounts how she became an outlaw and the many crazy and dangerous adventures she experienced when she was. Do you have the book? I feel like the book has like a really good first line. Yeah. In the year of our Lord, 1894, I became an outlaw. Like a lot of things, it didn't happen all at once. Okay. You have to read it again. Okay. Katie, will you give me a dramatic reading of the first line of the book? In the year of our Lord, 1894, I became an outlaw. Like a lot of things, it didn't happen all at once. (laughs) Such a good opening line. You did a great job reenacting it. Thank you. I have an issue with this line, though. What? I have an issue with this opening line, though, before you give me your overall rating, which is just that I feel like this, like, led me to be like, okay, this is going to get crazy, and this is going to be a story about her being an outlaw. And then I feel like she didn't become an outlaw until, like, 70 pages in. Right. That was also where I almost got stuck was I thought you get set up to assume she's going to be an outlaw, but it takes her a while to get there. Like the intro is a little bit slow and I had to get past that point. And I knew once you got past that point, it would really start rolling, but there's a lot in between her journey of leaving her family and going between leaving her family and getting to the gang. Um, And I think it's important because that's part of where she starts to like become really interested in research in studying fertility um, and infertility and wanting to understand more about what was going on in her own body. So it's an important time for her as a character, but it kind of was surprising as a reader to get there. I wonder if it could have been like a flashback instead or something we talk about later in the book rather than starting off you know, telling us she's an outlaw, but not getting there for a while. I feel like a flashback would have been so powerful in that situation because I think I would have kept reading if I knew what I was going to get at the end of the book because the ending and the her being a part of the gang was like, once I was there, I was in. But it takes a while to get there. And if there would have been a flash forward to like 
her being in this gang and with the kid and, you know, whatever else had happened, I feel like I would have wanted to keep reading to figure out how all of these moments that she's living through really impacted how she was in the gang. But instead I was like, this is things that I have to get through before I get to the part that I want to read. Yeah, I think that's totally, totally a fair um, critique. So this was kind of a very a book I didn't really expect you to pick up um, as, as a Western kind of as a genre here. What did you what did you think of the book overall? What did you think of reading a Western? I really liked this book. I think two things that the book talks about, about like the expectations around women and fertility um, or people who present as a woman and expecting them to be you know, wanting to have children, able to have children, all of those things that are wrapped up into it is something we still deal with today. And then also the kind of gender disparities um, in research, it doesn't get too much into it, but that is also something we really deal with. Like a lot of medication um, is never studied on women. It's definitely never studied on pregnant women. So there's a lot of things that we don't know about how women react to taking certain medication. You know, one of the biggest things is I think a lot of doctors will recommend like for women who are pregnant to not take their SSRIs because there just haven't been good studies to understand the impact of pregnancy on women who need to take these medications. Uh, there's just like a lot of glaring um, issues with research about gender and research on women. So I thought that was a really resonant theme for me. I've never read a Western. I don't even think I've like watched very many movies that are a Western. So I thought it was like a fun trot through that genre. I don't know if I would continue if it wasn't with this theme that I really wanted to dig into. Yeah. That's just me personally, but I don't know. Never say never. I enjoyed this book. I liked this book a lot too. Um, I've never read a Western book or ever watched a West, maybe like a full Western movie. Like I definitely understand the concept, but I am not somebody who watches or reads in that genre. But, and I feel like I don't want to do it again because I feel like this book was good, but it's kind of like this, this fake history kind of historical fiction where I feel like we didn't have to play by the rules that most Westerns have to play by or do play by. And there were a lot of themes that I feel like we got to address, which was like, I don't know, this predominantly woman run gang who is, you know, loving for loving um, and caring for each other and all their gender nonconforming kind of themes throughout there and what they're kind of reckoning with. Um, I feel like I enjoyed reading about this, but I don't think I would enjoy reading like a true traditional Western, but maybe because I do like the part when we get to like the bank heist and the crazy things happening, but I think you can get that in other genres too. So what was your overall rating? I think overall I would give this a four out of five. I thought it was a really unique perspective, extremely unique characters. A lot of it was very thoughtful and something I had never read before. And you know, I love when a book takes me to a place I've never been, shows me an experience I have never thought of. I thought that was amazing. I also like that we have some genre specific tropes. Like we like, they steal a wagon, which I, feel I like did I like the genre. Specific. That's what I'm yeah. saying. It's like, I'm reading this book about, 
I didn't feel like I was reading a book in one genre, maybe, is how I want to say it. Like, I feel like I was reading kind of a historical fiction book, and there were some things about it being Western, but it also was, like, this coming-of-age story and this woman finding herself and her place in society and what society means when you're a woman and how you can function. So there was a lot of different things in it, and I feel like that's why I really enjoyed it as well. Um, also, there's a great romance novel trope, The Fake Marriage, which is like a classic. Oh, yeah. There setup. we go. So, I mean, really had a little bit of everything, um, which I I did enjoy. And I think that's the kind of book I like, too, where there's a little bit of everything. There's a little bit of, you know, somebody does get injured. People die. There's like some kind of heist. Things are happening. But there also is a lot of like slower scenes as well. And so I think that that is the kind of book I like to read rather than something that is fully action-packed or just a monologue from characters and like they're just like processing their life I like this kind of mix of it there's also almost a movie montage of her trying to figure out how to turn manure into a bomb oh yeah and she keeps trying and keeps trying and keeps messing up and keeps messing up like I thought there were so (laughs) many of these scenes that were very like played in my mind almost like Mm -hmm. I thought it was a it was a good book if you've never read this genre or you're new into this space and she wrote it in a way that was very engaging for people outside of this. Absolutely. Also loved the mountain fight scene when they were like riding their horses up and down. The horse comes back and finds her, which wild, but like, you know, the horse, we love the horse comes back and finds her and she's having the standoff with the sheriff and just like the, like the adrenaline rush of those last couple chapters. I was like, this is good. Um, I think I would give it a four out of five as well. One thing that's really difficult is how do you write a book in the past being sensitive and knowing what we know now? And one book that's related to this, which is also a Western and that Anna has talked about in other interviews is Cormac McCarthy's books, which I'm reading, was reading Blood Meridian. I empathize with writers who are trying to write period books where this is genuinely what the characters would have said. It's what they would have thought. It's how they would have talked about people. Yeah. Um, and I understand how we can criticize Ada for not having the understandings that we have now or for not being like where we are now. Um, I didn't find this book to be the same like level. Like I think there's a way to do it and to acknowledge what was going on the way you know we have this character, Dr. Lively, who comes in. We can recognize that that was the time, but still Ada is like thoughtful and kind of argues with this uh, perspective and has a different view on it. Um, But it's definitely like a really thorny trick to deal with. I don't know. For Blood Meridian, I just found like as a white author, I don't understand why you need to have so many N-words. Like every character is saying it over and over again. It's a little like Quentin Tarantino, like. Dude, what are you getting out of this that you have to put it in your fiction all the time? Um, but I understand that for, you know, for this book in particular, which we'll talk to Anna about later, there's a lot of gender norms and a lot of gender identity labels and things that we have evolved a lot um, with, even in the past like year, that just True. wouldn't have been in the minds of these characters at the time. So it's hard to write a character who's empathetic you know, and we want to love Ada, but she also says some things that are so cringy and you're like, oh my God, I would never ask that or think Mm -hmm. that, or you shouldn't go there. Um, So it was a, that was an interesting part of the book. I think kind of grappling with 
being authentic to the setting and the time mm-hmm. without being offensive or exclusionary. Exclusionary. Oh my god. <laughs> without being offensive or ex- um, excluding people or making people feel bad. And I think that's something I struggled with reading it, and I know other people did. Yeah, I for sure. And I think this is the thing. No, I think this is good. I think I have two things to say. I wrote them down on my desk, so hopefully that erases in a second. <laughs> um, but the two things I have to say, I think that there is a way to do it. I think it's hard to read, but I think it's being authentic to the setting, but also authentic to the journeys people take. People do not, especially in like today's world, even like you do not wake up and have all of your views you're going to have for the rest of your life. Sometimes you have to go on a journey to figure those out and you have to make mistakes and you have to ask the wrong questions or say the wrong things and learn from them. And I think it's really hard to do that. But I think showing the authentic journey of people is also important because you don't just wake up with like ultra progressive views that you're comfortable sharing with everybody. Like you have to get there. And I think that she kind of showed some of that with Ada. This is also hard in reading historical fiction in general. I, cause I do read historical fiction. I think there are, it's hard to sometimes read about the role of women and the, where they're, what they were, you know, what was acceptable in society for women to do or to say or to wear or to be. And I think sometimes that is just the period and you have to kind of read that because those are valid stories that deserve to be told also, you know, because forgetting that is not helpful either for growth and for learning. Uh, I think historical fiction that I like the most focuses on women's roles outside of that. So, you know, like I read this book called The Kitchen Front. New women weren't in this in this time, and I can't remember the exact time period now, but but all these women were staying at home with the children. But they also formed this like group together outside of what society told them they could do for work and you know, basically tried to and did break down these norms and form this like friendship in this space where they could talk and discuss the political happenings that were happening on the world. They weren't allowed in those conversations in society, but they did it on their own. Um, so I like when they kind of show you, even if women in this, you know, in that age were not allowed in society conversations about politics or the war or whatever, they were not happening. They were not not having feelings and emotions and discussing it and planning things secretly. So I, I think, I don't know if that made sense, but I think it's really hard to write while being sensitive to how we see things today. But I think also you don't get where you're at today without walking on a journey and the journey is not overnight. But I think there is a line like in Blood Meridian where, you know, what is it adding to the story and what are we learning from it now when it seems unnecessary to add that in? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I do think whatever they're doing has to add to the story. The, you know, adding in language that doesn't do anything for the characters feels unnecessary and unnecessary like trauma to be adding into a book. But I think like the way that they dress and the interactions that they have are directly related to how they can function in this society and how they can be safe and live the life that they want. So I think it is, you know, there obviously can be problems with those tropes, but I think, and we can talk about that, but I think also the necessity to the story matters too. Yeah. I mean, we also had this um, in Addie LaRue where she wants to go to the bar. And so she dresses as a man to go to the bar she then meets a guy they have a relationship so there's a lot of interesting questions to ask like what should disclosure look like what is consent in that setting what you know could you even disclose who you were in that setting without getting right 
physically attacked. Like, I don't know. It's very complicated. I do think there's a lot here. I don't want to say like, if you were upset by those scenes that that's not valid, of course. I think it's just a conversation and it's, it's important because like I said, people are at different, come from different places. And I think we have to continue having the conversations. We don't live in a perfect society. That's all in agreement of of even these conversations now, like these conversations we're having that we have are in our, in people who believe what we believe and who have done the reading and the research and the thinking and the talking that we have done, which is not everybody in the world. And so there, there has to be some room to have both of those conversations and to like learn and grow from them. I think it's cool to be able to do it through fiction. I also think it's really cool how Ada grows throughout the book because she comes into this gang and she meets people who have different sexuality, who have different gender expression. You know, we have the kid who is just the kid Mm -hmm. and she's learning from each of them about herself and she's learning about alternative ways to make a life, to make meaning in your life that are outside of this traditional, you get married, you have eight kids, right? you know, you live in this kind of sheltered society. So we're going along with her in that journey. And I think, yeah, and that's kind of what I'm trying to say. She's on the journey and we're with her and, you know, and she shows up and she sees Cassie and the kid together. She is surprised. And it's not surprised because the author doesn't realize that queer relationships have been around for forever. It's surprised because it's authentic to Ada coming from a town where she's super, super sheltered and her experience when she first is kind of exposed to something different than what she knows. And I think that, that kind of coming to light and reckoning with your belief system is important to read about and to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have so much more to say and so much more to discuss <laughs> and we will continue the discussion after the break with Anna North. Cannot wait to talk to her. Yay. I'm Anna North. Um, I'm the author of three novels. The most recent one is Outlawed, which came out with Bloomsbury in January. And that's the one I think we're going to talk about today. Um, I'm also a senior correspondent at Vox.com. One main theme of this book is reproductive justice. This book takes place um, in the 1800s, but this specifically is still such a relevant issue today um, that's sadly still being legislated over and understudied. Um, I wanted to know how does writing in the past about an issue allow us to think about it more critically in the present day? Yeah. I mean, when I started the book, I knew that I didn't want to set it in the present day. Um, I thought a little bit about, you know, maybe am I going to set it in the future? Um, Am I going to set it sort of in the deep past? Um, To what level is this going to be an alternate history? Um, But I knew I didn't want it to be in the present for a number of reasons. One of them is that I, you know, I did want to tackle some of these big themes, um, including reproductive justice, reproductive rights. And I didn't necessarily want to do that in just sort of like a straight ahead way. I'm, you know, I'm already a journalist, so I, I cover these things in the present in a different venue. I didn't feel like I needed to do that with my fiction. I also just really enjoy creating different worlds. World building is something that's really fun to me. Um, And I think it's this interesting way of sort of like 
almost like creating a laboratory where you can see like what would humans do under totally different circumstances in this in this different time and place. Um, so those are kind of all reasons why I ended up wanting to write an alternate history rather than, um, you know, an alternate present or even something that would be realistic in the present. Um, but that said, I mean, the, the book does deal with a lot of things that are real. I mean, it's funny, I get a lot of questions about like, how historically accurate is this book? And like, it's not historically accurate, like there, but there are elements that are. So, you know, for example, like, there was a flu pandemic in 1830. It was devastating, but it didn't like destroy the United States. So like, that's like the the backstory of this book is like the US federal government is no more, you know, there's been like, basically almost this like viral apocalypse. And that didn't quite happen, obviously. Um, You know, but and then also like, were women very stigmatized for being infertile in the 1800s and also now today? Like, yes, yes, they are. Um, you know, have women been persecuted across history? You know, in some ways, people of all genders persecuted across history, like for their deviations from a reproductive norm. Like, yes, they are. So, you know, I mean, you see this in the Salem Witch Trials, you know, you can see it still happening today, you know, all across American history and and the history of the world. So, it's like a lot of this broadly is accurate, but I, I didn't want to tell, you know, just like a story about the here and now, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I did see someone um, talking about like, is this historical fiction or not? And they were like, it's a little far away from historical fiction. It's like historical fiction plus like a weird dystopia kind of it's a near it's a near universe, but not quite the same. Um yeah, I mean, I think of it as an alternate history. Um, you know, like when I was reading the book, I read other alternate histories. I read Underground Railroad. Um, that one comes to mind. You know, there's you know, there's this whole tradition, I think, of of reimagining history in different ways. And that's sort of how I think of this book. Um, I have seen it on like historical fiction lists, which is, you know, is cool. And I appreciate that. But um, I wouldn't want someone to pick this book up and think like, this is going to be like a very faithful rendering of what it was like to live in 1894 in Wyoming because it is not. Okay. Good to know. It's interesting because I like, I love historical fiction books. Uh, I think Eric and I kind of differ on this, but I liked this book because of the same reasons that I like historical fiction books, which is that it's a world that I'm not currently living in that kind of provides a commentary on things in general that I might be experiencing, but in a fully different world than I can even really relate to. So it kind of takes you out of your present circumstance, which I feel like this book did too. um, And like makes you think about it from a a different person's perspective at a different time. So I can see how it would be on there, but it's still not historical fiction. So it's an interesting like intersection there. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I love that description of historical fiction and I like, I'm flattered that I hope like the book does some of that. I think like, one reason I didn't just set it in like real life 1890s is I'm terrified to write historical fiction. It's really hard. You really have to get stuff right. I did a ton of research for this book, but I think like not nearly enough to have written like an actual faithful historical novel. So I really right. wanted that freedom to be able to like make stuff up if I needed to. Yeah, no, I love that. I think it'd be fun to write like that for sure. But I do think you get the aspects of historical fiction too. So it's cool. The central cast of characters in this book um, are the Hole in the Wall gang. And what can we learn from this gang in particular about the significance or the not significance of our conventional ideas about gender roles? And why was it important for Ada to reckon with her beliefs about sex and reproductive 
um, rights as well as gender and parenthood kind of all at the same time or in this setting or with this group of people? Yeah, I mean, one of the most fun things to me about writing this book was taking the idea of a Western and the idea of outlaws and sort of flipping it on its head in a number of ways. And one way that I wanted to do that was by sort of gender flipping it. So if you look at the historical hole in the wall gang, um, you know, who are real people, most of them were men. There were actually women in the gang. There's a woman named Laura Bullion, um, who was sometimes known as the Thorny Rose. Um, and she's like a little bit the model for Agnes Rose in the book. Um, but like most of them were guys, like, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were men. Um, and, you know, when you watch like movies about this gang or, you know, sort of classic traditional Western movies, they're usually like really, really focused on a male point of view and a white male point of view. Um, and so I wanted to play with that and kind of flip that on its head a little bit and change what people expect of a Western. Um, and there's been a bunch of books recently actually that have done that in really interesting ways. Um, but that was part of it. And then for Ada, she's someone who's really grown up in like a pretty cloistered environment. You know, she lives in a small town. It's not, you know, in this world, in the time that she's living, there's not a lot of communication around the country, around the world. She doesn't have a lot of sources of information. She's not meeting a lot of people. So until she gets to the hole in the wall gang, you know, she's, she has these memories of people having, for example, some same sex relationships, but she's never really seen like, you know, anyone like have a queer family. She's never like, she has no models for that. She has really no models for anyone having a family that doesn't include children because the only people that don't have children in her town are basically ostracized and treated terribly. So, so I think part of, part of coming to the gang for her is suddenly realizing all these different ways to be a person that she was never shown growing up. And that was like a, like a fun and interesting and, and, difficult because it was difficult for me to get in the headspace of someone, you know, who like has no information and very few life experiences, um, and whose life and worldview is going to be really different from the worldview of someone that grows up today. Um, but it was also cool. Cause I just like wanted to explore, you know, this chosen family that exists in the hole in the wall gang and, um, you know, the way that they, kind of show different options and different ways of living within this world that's otherwise really repressive. I think that leads us right into our next question. So related to this, a lot of the characters seem to be gender nonconforming or queer, but they aren't described or self-identifying using these labels in the story. Um, did you think of certain characters as fitting into labels like non-binary or transgender um, when you were writing the story? Why or why not? Yeah, this is a really great question. Um, because when I was writing this, I thought a lot about, um, you know, sort of how, like, how to be true to even the alternate historical context, right? So it's not true history, but it is set in 1894. And it is set in this time of like, really deep repression around gender and around sexuality and around reproduction and fertility. So I wanted to be true to that context while at the same time kind of showing, you know, showing queer people, showing, um, you know, a wide diversity of people and of lives, showing a lot of different possibilities to Ada and to the reader. Um, and I actually I ended up talking about this with my writing group a lot, just like what, you know, how would people refer to each other in this world? Like what kinds of pronouns would they use? How would they think about their relationships with one another? If they're queer relationships, how would they think about their sexuality? Um, 
I mean, one example is the character of the kid who in the book, um, the kid doesn't use pronouns. Um, and that's something that I thought about a lot. Um, you know, for instance, like I talked with my editor, I talked with my agent a little bit about like whether the kid should use they, them pronouns. Um, I do think like the way I think about the kid is I think if the kid were alive today, the kid would probably identify as non-binary, but I don't know that non-binary is an identity that they would have had in, in this world and this time. So it's not a word that's used in the book. Um, they, them pronouns are old. Like, you know, a lot of people know this now and talk about it, that for hundreds of years, people have used they, them pronouns in different contexts. So it wouldn't have been, um, you know, ahistorical or strange, I, I think for the context of the book, for the kid to use those. Um, but also I started, um, when I started writing the character, the kid, I remember taking, like taking sections to writing group. And one of my friends was like, um, it would be cool if the kid was just the kid. Um, you know, like that's how we refer to the kid and that's it. Um, and I thought that fit the kid's character in a certain way. And of course there are people who don't use pronouns today and there have been across history. So it felt like, you know, it's like if the kid were going to walk into this room right now, like, and we're alive today, um, in the United States, like probably they would use they, them pronouns. Um, cause those are just very widespread now. Um, but in the world of the book, I just felt true to this character for the kid to not use them. Um, and especially as I started writing, that just came really naturally. And like, you'd think it would be kind of hard to avoid pronouns, but there were only a couple of spots where it was difficult at all. Um, so every time I had the opportunity to like rethink it and maybe change it, I was like, no, this is, this is the way the kid is in this world. This is how the kid identifies. There's a certain fluidity that exists without labels, although labels themselves are very affirming. So it's an interesting world where people could just kind of exist in this gang and express themselves however they wanted to, um, like without having to say this character is this type of way or they identify as this. Um, but it makes sense that they wouldn't have had the labels potentially to describe themselves in certain ways. Oh, just to go off that. Yeah. I mean, I, I read like a decent amount of... Um, you know, of sort of historical text to think about this too. There's a great book that I've, I've recommended before called Lieutenant Nunn, that um, it's the memoir of someone who was born in the 1500s and lived most of his life as a man, but actually was assigned female at birth and entered a convent at one point and escaped from the convent and lived as a man, lived this like swashbuckling existence. Um, but thinking about that and like looking at the scholarship about this person, it's like, we can't know like, that person's never going to be alive today. We can't know would they say that they're trans, you know, would he say that he's, um, would he say that he's a man? Would he, we, we just like can't make that historical leap. We just don't know. And so sort of like, you know, I think holding space for that is like a difficult thing for historians. Um, but something I thought about a lot when I was writing the book. Yeah, I like the idea of people, you know, they're existing in these identities that we would call, we would label today because we're having a lot of conversations about this um, and about how people identify, how they want to be identified, but we're not there with them in this historical context. And I feel like it's, it's okay. And it's a really interesting way to not put labels on anyone to just have them existing and accepting each other as they are, um, which, you know, without having the words has obviously happened forever. So I think that it like, it gives space to that without having to label it. So I really liked that part of it. So Ada flees persecution in her hometown because she's unable to bear children. But 
through her time with the Hole in the Wall gang, she discovers a new horror, which is Dr. Lively and his racist eugenics speeches and beliefs. Um, what did you want Ada to learn from this development? And what was the intention behind adding this additional layer of oppression into the story? Yeah, that was one of the hardest parts of the book to write. Um, I really wanted... Um, it made sense to me that if this world is so obsessed with reproduction and if this world is in many ways so misogynist that it would also be racist. Um, and this is also something that my writing group pointed out to me. They're like, you know, it doesn't make sense to have a world where like women are really stigmatized, but like, like it's just post-racist or pre-racist for some reason, like no time has existed like that in the United States. Um, so that made a lot of sense to me. And also just like, there's been this, this, centuries long history of a real dovetailing between not just sexism and racism, but specifically between racism and these ideas about fertility and reproduction and quote unquote purity and all this. And a lot of the stuff with Dr. Lively, you know, is pretty like, not the same, but close to what existed in the real life eugenics movement. Um, that had sort of, you know, people claiming that it was scientific and this whole sort of, this whole sort of pseudoscience built up around it. And you still see racist, racist pseudoscience today and sort of like the, I don't know, the scientific, this is such a hard word to say, but like the, you know, the sciencing up whatever of racism is something that still happens a lot. Um, and so I wanted to show that in this world. And I also wanted there to be this sense that like, because in the world of the book, there's often, you know, religion often becomes an excuse to oppress people in the book, but I also wanted to show that science can do that too, or that pseudoscience can do that too, and not have this binary of like religion, bad science, good. It was important to me to kind of have that be intention. So that was, that was part of, um, part of why I wanted to write that, those parts too. I, we talked about that. Have you read, um, Transcendent Kingdom? I haven't yet. No. But they talk a lot about kind of the, the, they're contrasting a lot in that book, um, religion and science. And, mm -hmm. and what you said was something we talked about there in a lot, like you can, neither is all encompassing good or all bad. And I think the, the next question we had is, was like, is religion a vehicle for good or an excuse for bad? And I think that it could kind of be either. And obviously so can, so can science be used for good or for bad as well. Yeah, I really, I wanted to try to portray that nuance in the book, um, you know, especially, um, you know, with the role of religion in the book, like, I'm not personally a religious person. So I especially didn't want to be like, you know, throw, throwing stones at people from the point of view of someone who's really an outsider. Um, I wanted instead to kind of, you know, show religion having a variety of different roles in different people's lives in the book. So people practice in different ways. There's the nuns in the convent who... Um, obviously have devoted their lives to religion, but they're also kind of politically radical within the world of the book, um, which is true to life, um, you know, of, of certain nuns at certain times. Um, and then also the kid, you know, is obviously a very religious person, a former preacher, the child of a preacher, um, you know, who kind of uses religion in this inspirational way. And sometimes, you know, sometimes the way the kid leads can be problematic, but I wanted to show, you know, how religion can be in this completely different context from the way, for example, that we see it like in Ada's town growing up where it's very sort of, you know, everybody's talking about the Virgin Mary all the time and it's, it's just kind of used to sort of shut people's lives down in a way. I liked too that the kid had this way of being inspiring and like 
you know, hopeful and things with the religion, but it also like veered towards manipulation at times. I, so like, I think that you're kind of seeing that, that contrast there as well. Um, yeah, I think I've, I've been really interested in people's responses to the kid because some kind of view the kid as an antihero. Some are almost like the kid is like a villain. Um, which I don't like to me, the kid is definitely not a villain, but like definitely a complicated character and definitely at times manipulating. Um, so yeah, in some ways, like the kid was like the hardest character for me. And once I sort of nailed the kid's voice and the way that the kid speaks and uses the Bible, that kind of cracked things open a little bit. So when you were writing the kid, what did, what did that character represent to you? Where did you kind of get the inspiration for the kid? I'm trying to think of where I, I think I drew inspiration from a lot of places. I mean, um, I, what I wanted was someone that would be larger than life, almost kind of a mythic figure, um, very sort of magnetic and charismatic, someone that people would follow. Um, but I also didn't want that person to be the same as, um, you know, what we've seen in Western movies, a typical Western hero in a number of ways. I mean, like a small example is the kid is not actually physically large. Um, you know, there's like, um, I can't remember if I kept this line in or not. Like I had to like cut an ad so much. I never remember, but, um, in one draft, there's a part where like, there's all these legends about the kid and being like seven feet tall or whatever. Um, but in real life, the kid's not like super tall you know, or super big. Um, and that was sort of important to me to think about. And then I thought a lot about like the kids clothes and physical appearance. And I decided that I wanted the kid to be very beautifully dressed and to have like these beautiful suits that were really immaculate. And in some ways that was like a reaction to like a sort of dusty Western where everyone's gross. Like I'm a big fan of Deadwood. I didn't actually watch it until I was done with the book, but like everything's like super grimy in that show. And I think that's true to life, but I wanted like it almost makes a character larger than life if they're able to stay clean, like in this like <laughs> environment of so much like dirt where it's like hard to take a shower. Um, so yeah, I think if anything, I was just inspired by sort of like, you know, hero stories and, and myth and sort of, you know, larger than life characters. When the sheriff and Ada are in their standoff, he says to her, if you know why it happened, if you have someone or somebody to blame, then sometimes it's good enough to just keep going. And this is sort of how, you know, why she was ostracized, why she was called a witch, why he kind of like went along with it in order to like keep the town together. Is this how you think most belief systems operate? Like we just try and make sense out of something that doesn't make sense and any story is kind of good enough. I mean, I think, you know, ideally, like, we wouldn't behave the way the sheriff does, which is that the sheriff kind of knows that none of this is Ada's fault, but he just, like, needs to give the town a story. Um, you know, like, obviously, that's not that's not ideal. Um, I think that as humans, like, we're very attached to narratives, and we want to put our lives in narrative. And I feel like I've even read psych research that like, if we can put our lives in like a narrative that makes sense to us, then we like feel better and we're less prone to depression and, and stuff like that, which kind of makes sense intuitively. So I do think like, there's always, there's always the desire to have a story. And I mean, I even think about this in my own life. Like I think part of why, why I write, you know, whether it's fiction or nonfiction is to sort of like put a narrative on things that don't always make sense and don't always 
fit into a clean narrative. Um, so I do think it's this drive that people have. And I think, you know, that gets us into trouble sometimes as, as with the sheriff or gets other people into trouble or can be really harmful. But at the same time, it's also maybe sort of what makes us human and also like what makes it possible for us to live in like a random universe where things happen for no reason. That makes sense. I have this reaction with like COVID misinformation and with people in power, um, like saying things that are just blatantly not true. I'm like, don't you like, don't like, you must know it's wrong. Like you must know elected Congress person who is vaccinated that getting vaccinated is the right thing to do, but they're just like, they're like the sheriff in that way. Um, it's very frustrating to me personally, but I, I, would <laughs> I don't know. Did you, I know that this was, you must've written this before COVID, but it definitely seems like almost related. It, I, I liked imagining this book potentially as like a potential future where like everything has gone so wrong. We reverted back to this like kind of more primitive style of existing. Was that like something that you thought about at all? Or this was like way before COVID was even in our minds? I definitely wrote it before COVID. I was like finishing copy edits when we like locked down here in New York in 2020. Um, But it definitely has like uncomfortable resonances. I mean, like most obviously like there's a pandemic in the book. I felt like, like after COVID happened, I realized like in some ways I didn't know that much about pandemics. Like in the book, it talks about like, the pandemic kills like 90% of people. And like, there's actually never like luckily been a pandemic in the history of humanity that killed that many people. Um, you know, and maybe humanity wouldn't even survive something like that. So I feel like in some ways I, I learned some things. Um, but there's also, um, you know, I think you're right. There's other things that are really parallel. Um, like for good and for bad. I think the book tries to imagine a group of people where something really terrible has happened to their ancestors and they're trying to like figure out a society in response to that. Um, and now we're in this place where something really terrible has happened to the world. And I think there is a sense of wanting to rebuild in a different way and wanting to not just go back to exactly the same things we were doing before and I find that hopeful in a lot of ways um and I think like when I was writing the book even though the kid is not a perfect leader by any means I did want to present the hole in the wall gang as really kind of like really a refuge for people and really a different kind of society and a joyful society in a lot of ways and so you know sometimes I like to imagine like okay like from you know from this terrible crisis, can there come like different kinds of kinship? Can there come like different ways of caring for one another? Can there come, you know, different ways of valuing people, different ways of valuing work and different ways of valuing care? So, um, you know, some of the themes of just like what happens after kind of like an apocalypse um, are both like uncomfortably resonant to me living now, but also maybe a tiny bit hopeful, if that makes sense. I, I liked the hopefulness of it, of like their reimagining of what it means to be a part of a community. Thanks. But then they also have the classic, like, 
well, but then we're the bank. Like, okay, so we're going to be post-capitalist, but then what are we going to do? Right. Like, make the rules? We don't make rules. <laughs> we just leave. This is Yeah, I think it was interesting because I think you did a really good job, too, with this, like, cast of characters because they are creating this alternate – um, you know, kind of way of living and in living in community, but they're also still human. So they still like fight. They still question each other. They're still like petty. They're still like, you know, they're doing, they're still messy. They're human. And I love when we read about characters who are like doing something radical or living in a way that's radical. And then, you know, they're still humans. They're not like these, they're larger than life, but not truly, if that makes sense. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I definitely wanted to show them fighting and like, it was important to me that, like, <laughs> there'd be a character that like quits at a certain point. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, you know, like, I don't know if you've ever been part of like any kind of, any kind of group trying to change things or trying to live in a different way. Like there's, there's never not fight like any group of humans. There's always fighting. <laughs> I definitely wanted to portray that. Um, okay. So we did, Erica did steal this question from your book club questions. Uh, because you said it was your favorite. So I'm sure you've heard it before, but I'm going to ask it anyways. So in this story, Ada is rejected by her community and severed from her family and struggling to find her purpose in life. And she thinks, even if I was cured, if I conceived and bore a child, would I want to return to my old life? Would I go back to fair child with a baby on my hip triumphant? Uh, if Ada had been a mother, how would her story have changed? And do you think she could have returned knowing that her community had turned her away? It's a good question. It's funny because I, I don't remember saying that was my favorite, but it is a really good question. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess like there's two ways of answering that. One is, um, I guess I would imagine that she wouldn't go back. I mean, you could imagine that she would still want to be in contact with her family, but you know, this is a character who's like fairly stubborn, you know, fairly strong-willed. It feels like if she were at some point able to have a child, she would like still kind of forge a different path for herself. She also seems like someone that's going to like kind of going to become a scientist and a doctor no matter what happens. And so, you know, can she do that in Fairchild or does she need to go somewhere where she can kind of like do the kind of like really research that she wants to do? I think is a question for her that falls, you know, even outside of the question of whether she is going to have children. I think the other thing too, that I wanted to portray with this book is that although Ada does feel some loss around not being able to have a child, it's not actually the primary thing she feels like I wanted to show that like, she's lost her social position and her family of origin from this. And that's devastating. But she's actually not someone who like, if you picked her up and plunked her down in another society that didn't value childbearing in the same way. Like, I'm not sure she'd want to have kids. You know, it's not like she always grew up knowing, like, this is something I really crave to do on a deep and personal level. And I wanted to show that too, because I think it's like, both because that's just how the character came to me in my mind. And also because it's like, lots of people don't want to have kids. And I wanted like both to, you know, both to show like, how painful it is both in this fake society and in real society to deal with infertility, but also how like there are a lot of expectations placed on people, especially people socialized as female to be a mother. And that's not the path that everyone wants. And I just, and I don't know that that ever would have been like the top path for Ada. So I wanted to show that too. There are so many characters in the hole in the wall gang what was your decision-making process or what was your strategy for featuring an ensemble cast like this? 
Um, yeah, that was a little hard. I definitely knew I wanted it to kind of be a pretty big group from the beginning, um, because I wanted the sense of like a gang and a posse and like, and, and I, um, I've said this before, like on other podcasts and stuff, but I was inspired a lot by heist movies where they have like, this is your sharpshooter and this is your person who's a safe cracker. And this is, you know, the cat burglar and like the different roles. I wanted to have a sense of that. And so those all have, you know, always have this ensemble. And so I wanted to do that. And I wanted to show like different ways of living within this world and different like reasons that people might come to this gang. So I needed a certain number of people to do that. And I even actually like pared back the backstory of some of the characters. Like there's stuff I know in my head that like isn't in the book anymore, just about like how the characters came to the gang and where they were before. Um, In terms of like sort of managing that cast, like... That was hard. I mean, one thing I, early on, I was like, I have to limit the number. Like, it can't be 15 people. It's got to be, like, you know, seven or eight, like, ten max. Otherwise, I'm going to lose track. Um, And then I also made certain rules for myself that, like, are rules I learned in school, like, not ever having characters um, with names that start with the same letter. Um, this is like a trick that I think about all the time now. Like I think in undergrad, like in a writing workshop, someone was like, oh, you have a guy named Martin and a guy named Mike and they're in the same story. And like, it's too confusing. Never do this. And I was like, oh, right. You never have to do that. Cause you get to pick everyone's name. Um, so <laughs> that was like a small trick I used. And then also just trying to, um, block out scenes physically really carefully. I think that's something that I kind of learned in grad school. And so like, I, tried to be really clear in my mind, like the bunkhouse where they live, like this is where everyone sleeps. Like this is where the people are at different times. Um, And then like in the bank heist scene, this is the location of all the people in the bank. Like this is where everyone's standing. This is where they move. Um, You know, so um, just kind of like doing that blocking almost like a, you know, like a director or a screenwriter or something um, that like kind of helped me keep them straight. I would have to have like a full wall of where these people are. But I think what's the bank heist scene is impressive because I feel like being able to think about where everyone would have been for it to go the way that it did is like so many different trains of thought that have to have worked together and for, for it to be believable and it to have happened how it did. So that's extremely impressive. So our listeners may have just found out that you are a journalist as well as an author. Um, how does one career influence the other if they do? Yeah. So, um, I've been a journalist for a long time. I basically, like I started those careers kind of around the same time. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm a senior correspondent at Vox. Um, what I cover has kind of shifted over time. Um, these days, sometimes I call it like how people can live better lives in the 21st century or how people can live better lives under capitalism. I sort of like look at like work and family and why things are so hard in America for a lot of people and what are the problems and like, how can it be better? And how can we dismantle some of the systems that are sort of destroying people's lives? Um, so that's a long winded way of describing what my beat is, but it's, it's changed a lot over time and it's changed a lot during COVID too. But, um, yeah, I think they, you know, in some ways the careers really cross pollinate each other. Um, I think I, I do get inspiration, um, for my journalism, um, you know, mostly just like being plugged into what's going on in the world is helpful um, for my fiction. Also, just, um, you know, learning how to um, 
just learning how to interview people, like, um, especially for research, um, like for, I'm working on a new book. And so I've been doing research for that and interviewing people. And I did some interviews for this book too. And like, just like knowing how to get information, like journalism has been really good training for that. Um, I sort of like, sometimes I wish that fiction writing, like, cross-pollinated my journalism more I know fiction writers who are just like such beautiful writers in their nonfiction, and I don't like I feel like often my nonfiction editors are like surprised that I'm also a novelist because I think I just write in this very like basic way like I don't think it's bad or anything but it's not like beautiful necessarily um like I don't know I was just reading this um this Rivka Galchin story in the New Yorker and I was like ah this is just so well written um, but I think sometimes I have trouble like putting my fiction hat on when I'm doing journalism, but, um, I don't know, maybe I'll get better, better at, better at that aspect over time. This is probably people, if you're a journalist, I feel like you probably hate when people are like, oh, what about the f- most famous journalist ever? But, um, someone was asking for a fiction book recommendation. I was like, why well, should read Michael Pollan's new book? And it was really good. And they're like, that's not fiction. And I was like, but he writes so well. It feels like it, like, it feels like it's good anyway yeah um I feel that way with like academic writing and then somebody will be like can you write an Instagram caption and I'm like no (laughs) (laughs) these are so like the academic writing is very similar to more similar to journalism probably than fiction it's like just the facts say what happened take out any adjectives like cut and dry and so sad (laughs) much more boring than journalism (laughs) um okay so we're just about out of time. So our last question is what else are you reading right now? Or have you read anything recently that you would recommend? So right now I'm reading um, The Island of Missing Trees um, by Alif Shafak, um, which I just started, but it's been it's been really exciting so far. Um, and um, which I won't like give too much about it away also because I'm not done, but part of it is narrated by a fig tree, um, which is fun. Um then I'm also, I have like a bunch of books that I've started. Um, I'm reading The Family Chow, which is Sam Chang's new novel I'm really excited about. And I just read Second Place, um, the new Rachel Cuss novel, which I really loved. Um, it's really different um, from the Outline Trilogy in some ways, um, in that it shows this like very vulnerable person, um, you know, and... I mean, I think we're, like, past the unlikable character discourse at this point, but, like, does, like, make you think about unlikable characters and, like, what do we owe to people that we try to help? Um, so I really like that. Um, and those are the main ones. I'm trying to think, like, I have my, my like, TBR right now is incredibly long because basically for most of this year I've been reading stuff, like, for work or, like, quasi for work. And so... I keep meaning to, um, like pick up something that's like really just, just for fun. Um, another book that I'm reading, I'm, I'm embarrassed about how many books I have started and like not finished yet and how many books I have going at one time, but I'm reading Hummingbird Salamander, um, by Jeff Vandermeer, but I have to kind of like take it in small doses because it's all about like climate devastation and it's like very emotionally difficult. Um, so I'm sort of like reading a bit here and there when I'm feeling strong and upbeat. Um, but it's really good too. I just read um, Annihilation. Like I just started the Southern Reach trilogy. Oh yeah, I actually haven't read that. I want to. I, I was say is that the same author? It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, I want. I want to read those. Um, I I watched the movie Annihilation. Like I think pretty soon after I had my kid, and so I don't remember any of it. Like I was just totally like spaced out. 
and like kept falling asleep during it and my husband would like wake me up and then there's like a bear screaming with a human voice and like <laughs> what happened so I gotta watch that again and like actually read it but Hummingbird Salamander is great so far the book is good it's a similar like you're like oh wow things have gone really bad but it's not super explicit and I think it's also like an organism is destroying the world, or at least in this area, but it's beautiful. It's mm-hmm. also like, st- like it's stunning. It's like the earth is like reclaiming itself. So it's sort of a Nature's climate story. change is terrifying, but it's also kind of beautiful at the yeah. same time. So it's an interesting read. Um, well, thank you for those recommendations. Oh. This was really fun. <laughs> thank you for having me. I don't have anything to say. <laughs> I know, really. Um, well, I still don't have a voice, thanks to Verity and our podcasting marathon. Are you sure it was Verity and not the dancing and singing? It was definitely precursor to Verity screaming at the bar. Did not okay, help. just checking, making sure giving the full story to the listeners here because you didn't just podcast and lose your voice. <laughs> we had a great weekend in New York. We read a lot. You read two books that weekend. I did read two books in one weekend and socialized more than I have in like two years. And so that's a feat to really do both. We read Verity in one day, um, which was not nearly as hard as I thought it was going to be. I was pretty nervous about that. Yeah. I think I've settled on the fact that I don't like that book. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I did. I hated the ending. Check back to the feed to see our special episode about Verity. You'll hear all of our feelings as we go. I really want you to read the other Colleen Hoover book and tell me if you don't like Colleen Hoover or if you didn't like Verity. First of all, I love Colleen Hoover after discovering her TikTok. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, her as a human. Absolutely. (laughs) But what I meant was hysterical. You hear this, Colleen Hoover? Please keep making videos. You're very funny. Um, But I want to know if you like her writing or if you just didn't like Verity. Because I think I I liked It Ends With Us. I think Verity was engaging, but I did not like it as much at all. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so I mentioned this earlier, but I put down Blood Meridian. I officially returned it. I just, I couldn't. There's a part where they're in jail in Mexico and they're like sort of doing like an auction to like get them out of jail. And it was just really racist. And like, I just couldn't do it. It's just too dark. I feel like, why? I just, if there's yes, no point why are to you it, reading? why? If there's no point to it, why? I mean, that's also part of why I feel like iffy about Verity is because some of those scenes were so dark and for what? Why? Why did we go through that? You know? Which is so interesting because you love a dark, like, fucked up book. <laughs> but, so. like, because. Like, because it's taking me somewhere. It's lear- You know, like, I think about the scene. So Dan just read Detransition Baby. And he talked about that scene outside of... I can't. I think it's McCarran Park. I can't remember which park they're at. In my mind, they're at Fort Greene Park, but one of the parks in Brooklyn. I where literally they get have never heard of any of those parks. <laughs> well, they're at a park in Brooklyn, and it's like when they get in the fight and they, they rip her tights and like leave her on the side of the road. Right. Do you remember what scene they're talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of those scenes where you're like, it's, it's horrible, and it's so well written that you can, like, see it in your mind, and it sticks with you, but it's just, like, this reminder of, like, oh, being, like, rejected by your friends, being, like, ashamed, being made to feel shameful, having strangers look at you and not help you. It's just this, like, really meaningful scene for the character, um, and that it serves a function. It moves the story. It 
adds to it. It gives you something to think about and it stays with you because of that emotion that it brings up. Yeah. That's when I like dark books. Um, what else are you reading? I'm going to tell you about the books I read. Um, spoilers will be included. So the first one is Normal People. If you don't, you don't spoil want to this, know, yeah, stop listening because I'm going to spoil it. Skip ahead. Which is that I hate this ending. Like the book was good. I loved these characters. I loved how raw and again, messy and oh, I just loved them. But then like, I feel like the book was just them going back and forth and it just ended with the back and forth. Like I wanted some closure and I kind of was like, why did we end it here? I don't know. Because um, they're I, never going to get closure, Katie. That yeah, is but that's shitty. Sometimes. And at some point these people should get closure, whether they end up together or not. I feel like no. Well, I just didn't like it. And then I <laughs> and then I read Verity, which, you know, I think I gave it a four, but I don't know if that still stands. And then now I'm reading Group, um, which by Christy Tate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is chaotic and wild and hilarious. And every five minutes I'm like, wait, this is a memoir. This is real. Um, and then I like keep reading it and feel the same thing five minutes later. It is crazy. What did you think of it? I loved it. I also <laughs> felt like, are you kidding me? It gets to a point where you like, I it was one of those, I couldn't put it down. I'm like, oh, what I'm is happening? Yeah. Uh, I also felt the same way. I had to keep reminding myself like this actually, these are real people. <laughs> Earlier, you're like these characters, I'm like, yo, these humans. <laughs> is so chaotic and crazy i'm also re-watching sex in the city from the beginning and i just feel like there's a lot of (laughs) chaotic and crazy and this book is chaotic and crazy so it's uh it's good though are you reading so you put blood meridian down have you read anything else besides verity i'm making it through neighbor's secret it's getting a little bit better i think i'm getting my footing of like who is who and what is going on Um, and then after that, I have like a huge TBR, uh, list, but I do, you got me into reading or inspired me to keep reading Sally Rooney's new book, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Which I just read the first like two or three chapters. So I'm going to get back into that one. Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. Oh, my God. I think I muted Anna somehow. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I clicked it. Oh, and yeah, then you it did won't... mute her. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, did okay. you hear me introduce myself or... Yes, okay. I heard that. If it part. ended with Vox.com, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. I don't think I was actually talking during the time I was muted, so that's fine. Okay. Okay. Oh gosh. We're going to get all, we're getting all of these snafus out early. <laughs> Smooth sailing from here. <laughs>